Before I get into uh, the sermon, I want to just take a, a minute and commend Brad and Jennifer to you. They are taking this trip because they have spent 25 years of marriage together. And I think we can all attest, having been around them, that it is not just 25 years of marriage. It's 25 years of faithfulness to each other and uh, to their children, to the work God has called them to. Uh, A lot of it here at Providence. And they have worked diligently and they've worked humbly and they shy away from the spotlight. They shy away from praise of men. And yet they never miss an opportunity to exercise their gifts as it it relates to their calling. Um, I think it's a wonderful thing that that we have found and God has led to us a couple that he has called and equipped in such amazing ways. And uh, they complement each other. They sharpen each other's ministry. And that God would choose and that they would choose to establish and use the gifts that he's given them here at Providence, uh, I think demonstrates God's grace to our body of believers. So I commend them to you, and uh, I'm so excited that they get the chance to spend a few days resting and relaxing. He promised not to send pictures, and then like day one he sent pictures. So I'm sure there will be plenty for you to view uh, once they get back. Well, our sermon this morning is titled, A Splashy Gospel. And uh, I didn't come up with that on my own. We're we're speaking of baptism this morning. Uh, And uh, there will be a quote that I will read later that says, uh, baptism makes the gospel splashable. And uh, really, it's just a way, and we'll talk about this more in detail. It's a way for the gospel to transcend the spiritual reality and come meet us here in our very physical reality. And so uh, we will speak of baptism this morning, and if you would, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, and we'll read verses 6 through 15 together. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame 
by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray together. Father, for the sake of your son, Jesus, grant us ears to hear your spirit as he teaches us from the word this morning. Grant us understanding and faith to see the path you have laid out for us and to follow you wherever you lead. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, first of all, just a little housekeeping. We've got three goals this morning, and uh, the three goals of my message, uh, which I don't believe are listed on your bulletin, are these. As we search the scriptures, we must be convinced of three things relating to baptism. First of all, we must be convinced of the beauty of baptism and its centrality to the, to the message of the gospel. Secondly, we must be convinced of the joy that will be found in our ongoing improvement of our own baptism. And then thirdly, we must be convinced of the importance of teaching new believers to be baptized. To get there, we'll use two main sermon points, and these are listed. The first goal that we see will be accomplished as we talk a lot about the theology of baptism. What, is, what does the Bible tell us about what baptism is? And then the second and third goals, for the most part, will be accomplished as we talk about putting into practice what we learn about baptism. So baptism can be a very confusing topic. Um, lots of people believe a lot of different things about it. Even among Baptists, who sound like the authority on the issue, uh, you'll find a very wide variety of beliefs. Is it just an outward testimony? Is it uh, a path to join a church? Is it a promise I make to follow Jesus? And I've listed a few here, but there are really countless other answers. If you go and search for what does baptism mean, everyone has their own individual little take on it. As I was studying this, uh, I remembered that while we were in Florida for Christmas, uh, the famous wrestler Hulk Hogan uh, was baptized This is my excuse to get Hulk Hogan into a sermon slide. Uh, Baptized in a little beachside town uh, about half an hour away from us uh, while we were there. And I wondered what he thought about his baptism. He posted uh, a photo to social media, this photo actually. And he said uh, as a comment, total surrender and dedication to Jesus is the greatest day of my life. And he probably added brother to that at the end. I don't know. Sticking with celebrities, I don't have pictures of them all, but pop star Justin Bieber has been baptized a couple of times. You may recognize that name. The first time was in 2014, uh, and he and his pastor explained uh, to Oprah, no less, that it was an outward sign of what God was doing inwardly, and it was a, a way of committing to Jesus in an area that he wasn't committed in before. Uh, the second time, just a, a couple of years back, Uh, Justin was baptized with his wife in order to, and his quote was, confess their love and trust in Jesus publicly. Other celebrities, and I won't name names, but they've been baptized for the purposes of filling a God-sized hole or uh, letting Jesus in, whatever that means. Um, As I thought about it, I remember back to when I was baptized, And, and maybe you remember What was it like when you were baptized? What were your thoughts about it? I was seven years old, and honestly, I don't remember much about that day. I remember that I was baptized. 
But as a kid and growing up in a church very similar to this one, baptism was kind of automatic, right? You, you get saved and then you get baptized. There wasn't a real deep reason for baptism other than this is what the Bible tells me to do. And so you have to do it in front of everyone. So you go in the church up to the front and you walk down the plastic steps and try not to slip. And then you get into the pool and the pastor baptizes you and you come out. And depending on the type of church you're in, people might applaud or maybe they'll just say amen. And that was it. And now you can join the church because you're baptized. It can be a very confusing topic for us as we think about what actually happened in that moment. Did we just get wet? Did all we do was say, I believe in Jesus? There are churches out there uh, who say that it is part of the salvation process. It can be very confusing. And so let's take a, a look at the Bible just to see if we can get a better understanding of what baptism is. So first of all, what is baptism? Uh, we'll look through two main passages with a couple of supporting ones in between. You've got Colossians 2 open. Keep your finger there and go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> In Acts chapter 2, we find a, a scene where uh, Peter at the day of Pentecost is preaching to a group of people who were gathered because they had heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind and a bunch of Galileans speaking in their own tongue, in their own language. That was crazy enough of a thing that you had more than 3,000 people there. In Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 13, uh, we'll just read briefly this this. Uh, scenario. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the sound of the apostles speaking in other tongues and the sound of the rushing wind, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God and all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. The world is in Jerusalem in this passage for the Feast of Weeks, for Shavuot. I hope I said that right. Uh, and it's these same men who would have been in Jerusalem uh, for the Feast of Passover, just 50 or so days before uh, when Jesus was crucified. They hear the sound, they come together, and, and these men are devout men. They believe in God, but many of them had seen Jesus crucified, and I would imagine that many of them had consented to his death, had been in the crowd that said, give us Barabbas. A lot's happened in the last 50 days. And so these men stand around and they wonder what is going on that these men are speaking to us in our own tongues. And, and they're Galileans, they're, they're rednecks. And Peter gets up and he stands with the uh, as one of the 12 apostles and he addresses these men. And I won't read through his whole sermon, but he talks about Christ crucified and risen from the dead as a part of the prophecies that we find in the Old Testament, uh, a passage, passages of scripture 
that these men would have known very well. And he brings their their attention to Jesus. And then he says at the very end, and we'll read verses 37 through 41. uh, This is the response of many of these people. Uh, Start in verse 36. Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation, so those who received his word were baptized And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. We find, first of all, in a theology of baptism, when we think about what baptism is, it is, first of all, a public declaration of belief. It is an action that we take from us to the people around us. This is a radical action. These men are, are standing in a crowd of people who had just recently lifted up their voices to crucify Jesus Christ, and now 3,000 of them are ready to move from being against Christ to being completely for him. It wasn't enough for them to mentally assent to Christ. Would they have been saved? Yes, if that had just happened. But Peter calls on them and says, if you're going to mentally assent to Christ, the next step is to walk into the waters of baptism and be baptized in front of this crowd. As 3,000 of them were saved and were baptized, they publicly declared their belief in the Messiah without regard for consequences. It was not just, I believe he was God's anointed, but uh, you know, I'm just going to keep it to myself. It was... I believe Jesus Christ is God's anointed one. He's the Messiah. But now I'm taking a part in a religious rite that is distinctly un-Jewish. I am becoming something other than a Jew in this moment. I'm becoming a follower of Christ. This was the declaration that these men made as they followed Christ. And it is a public declaration throughout Scripture, especially throughout Acts. As people come to Christ, they are baptized immediately. doesn't matter who's around. It doesn't matter what uh, social pressures are against them. They are baptized. And that baptism speaks to the world around them and says, I am something different than what I used to be. So what is baptism? First of all, it is a public declaration of belief. Secondly, and uh, we'll be in Colossians chapter 2, so you're welcome to flip back to that. It is a participation in the covenant oath. Uh, What does that mean? I'll talk about it. It's a participation in the covenant oath. It's an action from us toward God. And I just want to pause and talk about the covenants that God made. Baptism does not replace 
circumcision. We read circumcision this morning as we read uh, through Colossians 2. It doesn't replace circumcision in the covenant, but in a sense, it rhymes with circumcision. I think I'm stepping on this. Hopefully we'll get it back. All right, if we don't, that's okay. Oh, all right. Um, When God instituted his covenant with Abraham and Israel, Israel ratified it or participated in it by means of circumcision. The covenant was something that God did And if, for example, you are an outsider who wanted to join the nation of Israel in their worship of God, you wanted to take uh, place or or participate in God's covenant, you would be circumcised. In that way, circumcision did not take the place of your faith in, in the God of Israel, but it was a sign of that covenant oath as you entered into the body or the, the, the nation as a participant in the promises of God. Jeremiah chapter 31, God speaks of a brand new covenant. And I'll read a couple of verses to you from verse 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. There are three covenants I want to talk about. The first one is the covenant God made to Abraham. And if you remember, God put Abraham into a deep sleep and he made a covenant to him and Abraham did nothing. He laid there and God inaugurated that covenant by killing animals and by walking through the middle of them to symbolize that it was him that was going to do the covenant. It was nothing that Abraham would do. God inaugurated the Mosaic Covenant uh, as the Israelites leave the land of Egypt. He inaugurated that covenant by, as well, the death of animals. But they were sacrificed for sin by the people of Israel. And so in that sense, the Mosaic Covenant, and we read this throughout the Old Testament, was God saying, I will do this, but you must obey. The Mosaic Covenant was a way for God to administrate the Abrahamic covenant, which still stands. And the law still stands as well, but it stands as a teacher to us. And so God says in Jeremiah 31, I will inaugurate a new covenant instead of you sacrificing this, these animals for sin. I'm going to inaugurate a new covenant that is based on a death as well but it's a death that I will cause and it is the death of my son. Jesus died as a direct result of God's plan to inaugurate a brand new covenant, the covenant we read about in Jeremiah 31, the covenant that he places in our hearts. And we read through that in Hebrews 8, 6 through 7. 
Uh, it says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Those promises are not promises we make. They are promises that God makes. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. <clears throat> and so as we look at that Mosaic covenant through the sign of circumcision, through the, the sacrifice of animals, we see uh, echoes, we see rhyming in this new covenant that we have through Jesus Christ. Certainly baptism is part of that. Baptism is a symbol of the death of Christ, which is the inauguration of the new covenant. And so Colossians 2 verses 9 through 12, and you've got your finger there. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul, in, in this epistle to the Colossians, is using covenant language. He's talking about circumcision. He's talking about baptism. He's talking about death and new life as a result of it. Through baptism, he says, we participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ symbolically. And it's interesting that in Matthew 28, and we actually read this uh, this morning in Sunday school, Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And most translations have it in the name. It can also, and maybe more appropriately be translated into the name, into the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So as we look at baptism, it's not just an opportunity for us to publicly declare. It is an opportunity for us to participate in the new covenant, to demonstrate that new covenant, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In baptism, there is a submission to God's covenant authority over our lives. Thirdly, we find that baptism is a gift of grace to be received. And now we're moving to actions that God takes. We receive the gift, but it is a complete gift. Back in Acts chapter 2. Peter is still preaching, and in verse 37, note the actions of God in these words. Peter and the rest of the apostles, the, the crowd said to them, Brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. God is through this message of Christ. He is forgiving. He is gifting the Holy Spirit. He is calling. He is promising. And what is that promise? What is that covenant? He is now including those who are baptized, believers, 
in the new covenant. And he's including us in the covenant he made with Abraham. We participate in the blessing that God spoke to Abraham about, not to replace or exclude the Jews. And we could spend hours going through Romans 9 through 12, where God specifically says, you're not replacing the the Jewish nation. I've still got plans for them. But you are being grafted into the covenant that I made with Abraham back in Genesis. God's planned before time inclusion of you in that covenant is exemplified, it is ratified, it is received as a gift in the waters of baptism. And I want to be very clear. Baptism does not save you. Faith in Christ, only faith in Christ saves. But baptism plays such a crucial role in the demonstration of that gospel faith that when we see it in scripture, it is, it's inseparable. It is a part of our walk towards Christ. Faith saves, baptism is all of these things. And then finally, along with members of the universal church, we are united to Christ and we participate with him. It is an action from God reaching out to his body and uniting us together and uniting us to Christ. We're back in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. And we just want to talk about the language that Paul uses here. If you like to read, if you're into movies, if you're into storytelling, you know, there, there are movies and books that you get to the end and you're like, that was good. And then there are the ones that just transcend everything and blow your mind, right? You get to the end and everything right happens. It was terrible looking. It was the worst thing ever. And then at the end, all is well. This is the story of the gospel that we demonstrate in baptism. Colossians 2 verse 9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. But it doesn't stop there. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You are filled in Christ. And as we, as we are baptized, as we go down into the water, this is the story we are telling. We're filled with him. We participate in his spiritual circumcision, that is, in his death, burial, and resurrection. And Paul goes on, you were dead 
in your trespasses. You were uncovenanted. You were uncircumcised. And contrast that to where you are now after going through the waters of baptism, after going through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in complete legal pardon. More accurately, our debt was not forgiven. It was completely canceled. It is as if it never happened. The debt of our sin is Christ's alone to bear. That happened to us through Christ. That is the story we're telling in baptism. Uh, He talks about spiritual authorities. He stripped them of their power, disarming them, the ESV says. He openly shames them and he parades their disgrace in front of the cosmos. This is the story baptism tells. When we go down into the water, it's not just a splash. It is a testimony to your death with Christ, death to your sins, and then being made fully and eternally alive with him and inheriting all of the promises that he inherits. We have to acknowledge just a little bit of of a mystical nature to these verses. As we read through this, this doesn't sound much like the baptism I understood as a kid. When I was seven and went down into the waters, I thought, cool, I got baptized, I, I did the thing. You get saved, you get baptized. We meet God. Not physically, not personally, but in the waters of baptism, we meet God. We meet the story of Christ. And it is there that we testify to that story in front of everyone. There's unity to Christ. There's also unity to the body. And Ephesians contrasts our uncircumcised, uncovenanted state to our current state in Christ. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In our uncovenanted state, We are separated from each other. We're separated from the body of Christ. We're separated from the Jews who have been in Christ, who have been part of the Abrahamic covenant. And in Christ, through his death, and we enter into that covenant, we are now one. We are united with Christ and we are united with his body. This is beautiful. This is the story of the gospel This is what we demonstrate when we go into the waters of baptism. Brad asked, I think, three weeks ago, what are are the fundamentals of the gospel? Baptism is one of those fundamentals. Through baptism, we ratify the covenant. We say amen to the covenant that God has put in our lives. And we enter into that covenant people 
And so a practical application of baptism, I said before, and I read this as I was doing my studies, baptism makes the gospel splashable. Like, the gospel is what it is, and we believe and are saved. And then in the waters of baptism, the gospel is exemplified in a real physical way, in a way that it cannot be exemplified in any other way except for maybe communion. These are the two things that God has given us to demonstrate the gospel in the physical world. What are three things that we can do as a a practical application? First of all, be baptized. If you have not been baptized, be baptized. It is commanded in scripture. It It is part of what we do as Christians. We are baptized. I won't spend a ton of time on that. Be baptized. Secondly, improve your baptism. And like, as I went into this study, maybe you're thinking like me, you know, I didn't, I didn't know all this when I was baptized. I didn't understand that baptism wasn't just the checkbox at the end of getting saved. I didn't understand the theology of baptism and, and what is all behind it. And, and I've often thought that. I've, I've thought, man, I don't even like remember going down into the water. I would love to do it again, but is that even a thing? First of all, isn't it, isn't it just the grace of God that we didn't have to understand the fullness of theology in order to become a believer? We didn't understand the fullness of theology in order to be baptized. By the grace of God, these things are not just one-time events. In our walk with God, often, and I've done this and I, I imagine you have too, often we come to a deeper understanding of the things we've done spiritually and even our conversion, even the moment of our salvation. We've often even come to a deeper understanding of what baptism is and and other ordinances, the the communion table. But others' baptisms are there for us to continue to improve in our own minds our own baptism. It's not just an opportunity to to clap or celebrate. We, We love to celebrate baptisms, but it is an opportunity for us to grow in our faith And experience again the grace of God in the gift of this symbol. Uh, The Westminster Larger Catechism calls it, uh, and we've used the word already, improving your baptism. And I'll just read briefly from that. It is the, the needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism. And it is to be performed by us all our life long especially in the time of temptation and when we're present at the administration of it to others by serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby and our solemn vow made therein by being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism There's a lot more words, and I'm not going to read them all, but I I love how one writer boiled it down. He says, with the eyes of faith, watch the gospel as it is on display in the waters. See the preaching of Christ's sacrifice pictured for you. Hear the music of your own new life in the burying of the believer and their resurrection in Jesus. Keep your eye on the waters and keep your eye on the witness Watch in faith and wash your soul again in the good news of being joined to Jesus. That is an exciting thing that we have the opportunity to do as we walk 
to the baptism uh, at a lake or even in a baptismal font, as we go watch another believer being baptized, we have the opportunity to grow in our understanding of our own baptism. In baptism, this beautiful, but really sometimes ethereal or, or unreachable, in our hearts gospel intersects the physical world and the water splashes and it's more beautiful and it's more grace-filled than the beauty of all the waves splashing on the shore of Hawaii in this moment. As we improve our baptism, we come to a greater understanding even of what Christ did for us on our behalf. And then finally, share your baptism. And this is the command, right? Matthew 28, 19, and 20. I'll just read it again for us. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It is so easy for us to look at these verses as an evangelism checklist. Okay, go, check. Make disciples, okay, check. Baptize them, we got that. Did we make sure it's in the name of all three members of the Trinity? Yep, we did that. Did we teach them to observe? You know, how many of these people did we sign up for this today, right? So easy for us to checklist this command of Christ before he went to heaven. But instead, each of these things as we go are beautiful pictures of the gospel of Christ. First of all, go. Jesus, willing to leave heaven for us, went to rescue us. And we go in his name. Make disciples. We share the good news of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. We baptize them. We bring this beautiful ordinance alongside with us as a public declaration of faith, as a means of ratifying or agreeing with the new covenant, as a gift of God's grace to be received, as a uniting with the church in the very death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is such a beautiful sign. And we take it with us and we baptize people in the name of Christ. I want to make just one quick point. Baptism is... uh, in Acts chapter 2, a way for these people to identify with Christ. And it was a really permanent thing. As soon as you go and you are baptized, everyone else looks at you different. And it's not a thing that you go back and revoke later. And in our culture of fluidity of identity, and in our culture of constantly being willing and able to throw away the things that we don't like anymore and become something new every time we want to. Baptism serves as a permanent reminder of who we are in Christ. We cannot throw away our identity because Christ holds us. We cannot get rid of who we are in him. It is permanent. We have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Unlike our culture, we have a permanent reminder of who we are. We are bound to Christ. And so the goal of this message, as we've searched the scriptures, is to be convinced of three things. First of all, 
of the beauty of baptism. And I hope we've seen how beautiful baptism is. Of its centrality to the message of the gospel. Baptism is not the gospel. Baptism does not save. But it is a part of the story. It is a part that we play as we listen and enter into the new covenant. Secondly, the joy to be found in the ongoing improvement of our own baptism. It's kind of an odd thing to say, but it's, it's an opportunity for us to grow in our faith, to grow in our relationship with God, and to grow in our understanding of what happened to us as we went down into the waters of baptism. And then thirdly, the importance of teaching new believers to be baptized. We don't leave home without baptism in our witness to a fallen world. We leave home and we say, here's the gospel, believe and be saved, and now be baptized. And so, I guess if I could use our sermon title, splash the gospel, show the gospel through baptism, uh, where we go and when we baptize other believers, the baptism must be a part of that, and we must be thankful for it. Let's pray together and... We'll take a moment to uh, just meditate on these things. Father, we're grateful for baptism. Um, what a beautiful picture it is of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. What a beautiful picture it is to us of the new covenant. What a beautiful sign it is of our uh, receiving of gifts from you. And what a wonderful unity we experience in it to all believers in all of time and to Christ himself. While we don't understand baptism in its complete fullness, Lord, I ask that you would continue to impress on us its importance. Help us to be overjoyed by the truths we find in it as we are overjoyed by the truths we find in salvation. These are the same truths, and we are grateful for them. And so, Lord, would you uh, do a work in our hearts. And then, Father, as we continue on uh, speaking of the gospel and future messages, may these words resonate in our ears, reminding us that the gospel is, uh, has intersected our reality, and it's done so in a number of ways, but uh, one of those ways is baptism. Father, we're thankful for this gift. Help us, uh, help us to continue forward with it. I just ask you to take a few minutes meditating and uh, as the piano plays. Mm -hmm.